these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10 as we make our way through this wonderful letter. We come this morning to a longer passage of Scripture, um, a wonderful passage full of rich truth. Uh, there will be many things that uh, I probably will leave unanswered. I just want to prepare you ahead of time because it is just so rich. But I also pray that the Lord would use it for His glory and for our good. If you are able and willing, as is our custom, would you please stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 39. <clears throat> Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me, please? Our God in heaven, would you now take your word and meet it with your spirit and have your way with us? Put on display the name of Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Jenny was once told by someone when our children were young that she told her children that she loved them too much. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's just sad. One, that somebody would say that, and secondly, that somebody would have the gumption to say that to a young mom. Now, I'd understand if, that's, if Jenny, in doing so, was simply being a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, saying, I love you, and then treating those children 
just the opposite. But if that were the case, that would be handled differently, wouldn't it? No, this person meant just what she said. Because you see, for this person, love was something that you had to earn. For this person, love was something that you had to work for. And isn't that sad? But in a way, we get that, don't we? And you may be thinking, well, I would never say such a thing. No, but we get it. Because sometimes we even think things like, or at least act in ways. You know, maybe God will love me more. Or maybe God will love me if I just do this. Or if I just do that. Then maybe God will love me more. Maybe, maybe I can earn his love. Sometimes we must admit that that's our motivation for obedience. But as the author of Hebrews begins to call, to call God's people to obedience, he doesn't begin with our obedience. In fact, he never really does even leave the wonder of Christ. Because our, our obedience is not rooted in our own strength in our own ability to do things, but our, our obedience to Christ is rooted there in Christ Jesus. It is rooted there in what God has done for His people in Christ Jesus. God doesn't require us to earn His love. He's loved us first. We are indeed a people loved, loved by God. And because of that, we have gracious commands, we have fearful warnings and we have faithful encouragements. And we see all three of those things laid out for us in this text. So let's look first into gracious commands. And as we begin, again, we're going to see these three commands that the author gives to the people of God. But before he gets there, he's going to once again lay the foundation for our action. Because it is not, as I've just mentioned, do this so that God will love you. But what he is saying is, he's saying do this because God loves you. In light of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus, then you do this. And we, we get that too, don't we? For after all, as a parent, and now as parents of older children, I, I don't want my children, even as grown adults, to think, that I want them to be successful so that I will somehow love them. No, not at all. In fact, I love my children and that's why I want them to be successful. The same thing is true of our Heavenly Father. He loves us. Therefore, He wants us to be obedient because He knows that being obedient to Him is what is actually good for us. And not only is that the foundation from which a believer is to obey, but but it's, all the, it's also the strength for that obedience. Because we can't obey apart from Him, apart from Christ. That's impossible. We can't muster up that strength on our own to do that. So, so the foundation for all of this is, is Him. It's Christ. He's the foundation. And so the author can exhort us to do these things because of the shed blood of Christ. Because of the confidence we have in that shed blood of Christ. And, and because of that confidence, we have the confidence to enter into the presence of God by that new and living way. What is that new and living way? It is Christ Jesus. 
He's opened that way for us to enter into the presence of God. And, and the author tells us, he says, in him, we have a great high priest over the house of God. So what are, what's he uh, wanting us to recall to our minds? Well, he has sat down at the right hand of God Almighty. He is ruling and reigning from that place. He continues to intercede on our behalf. You see, the author of Hebrews wants his readers and us here, even today, to know the truth of the Word of God because it's the Word of God that changes the way that we live. And so what he's saying, he's saying, look, in light of what God has done in Christ, now you live in this way. And even the commands that he gives are gracious. They're gracious. They're good for us. The first one is this, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And notice we talk, we've talked a lot about contrast and comparisons. Notice the contrast between that of Mount Sinai of which it is said, not even a beast touches the mountain for it will be stoned. Notice this contrast here, he says, let us draw near. I mean, what a wonderful contrast because of what Christ has done and what has he done? Christ has already done what he's actually calling us to do. Christ has drawn us near to God. He's opened up that way. And because he's done that, then we are to draw near unto the Lord. And we're to draw near with, to the Lord with a heart that's sincere, with a heart that's genuine. That's what the Lord wants from his people. We don't draw near through just empty uh, through these empty ceremonies, but with a heart that's right before God. Because God doesn't want those empty ceremonies. A divorce from a heart that belongs to him. He doesn't want us, even if we were to think of coming here on a Sunday morning, God doesn't want hearts that are divorced from, from a, a love and a passion for him and a thankfulness for what he's done in Christ Jesus. He doesn't want us to come here and simply go through the motions. And to sing these words without actually thinking of them. And listen to the prayers without actually being able to say amen. Because we agree with what's being said and being prayed for. He doesn't want us to come in here and just kind of watch what takes place. He wants us to come in and participate with a sincere heart. A genuine heart for the Lord. I wonder if we were to ask ourselves that question. Do we prepare to come into the presence of God in that way? To take part in the worship of God. Because this isn't just empty ceremony. We're worshiping the living God together. And he wants our hearts. The Lord says, doesn't he? He says, they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I mean, we can sing the songs, but where are our hearts? It's not what the Lord desires. He wants hearts that are genuine. And he wants us also to come with a full assurance of faith. I love this part. Love this part. We can come boldly before the Lord because of Jesus Christ and, and his work on our behalf. We come boldly before God because we know that when God looks at us, he sees the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ given to us. And how do we know that? Well, we look at the means, not the manner in which we come, but we look at the means by which, he, by which we draw near. It's, it tells us, doesn't it? Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We've been cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus, renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So therefore, let us draw near to the Lord. We have every confidence 
to come into his presence. Then second command, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And we've, we've heard this, haven't we, before in Hebrews in our study already. We see it in other parts of the word of God. Um, we see it in, in a bunch of Paul's letters to hold fast, keep holding fast the faith. Don't let go. Don't waver. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Don't be fickle with your faith, saying one thing and then acting another. But hold fast the confession. And he says, do so without wavering. Don't be like that rudderless ship, but be stable in your confession. Don't be tossed to and fro from one side to the other. But we can remain faithful because he who promised is faithful. We said that just a minute ago in our, in our catechism question together. It doesn't rest upon us, but on the faithfulness of God. Why can we be assured that we will never finally and totally fall away from the faith if we belong to Him? Because of His promises and His faithfulness, not our own. If it were left up to us, each one of us would fail. And each one of us would fall. But you can stand firm because He in whom you've put your trust is faithful. And if you begin to doubt... Look to the promises of God. Me and my boys were sitting around yesterday thinking about this. And they were asking questions about it. We all doubt. We all struggle with our faith. But look to the promises of God. If we look to our own self for that encouragement, we're likely not to find it. And if we do find it there, we're looking in the wrong place. Because that, all that means is that we're puffed up about ourselves and think we're better than we are. And think God is less than he is. But if you begin to doubt, look to the promises of God. It's not founded on our faithfulness, but on the faithfulness of the Lord. And then finally, in view of what God has done, in view of Christ Jesus, he says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We know that love is to characterize the life of the believer. I mean... We, we, can, we can recite these things together. And they will know that we are Christians by our love. Very good. We, already, we know that off the top of our head, don't we? That's how others will know that we're Christians, by our love. By the way, we treat one another. And, and it's interesting, by the way, that Paul, or the, the author of Hebrews here, does something that we see over and over again in Paul's own writings, this triad of faith, hope, and love. Did you catch that? And, and this actually is why some people believe that Hebrews is written by Paul or at least a, a student of Paul's. Because um, he says, let us draw near with a full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love. Faith, hope, love. That great Christian triad, that those things which are to characterize a follower of Jesus Christ. And I wonder, could we say that about ourselves? How's my faith? Am I trusting the Lord? Is my hope in the things of the Lord or the things of the world? And am I loving God and loving my neighbor? Is that what somebody would say about me? I wonder. If I were to describe this man or this woman to you, would they be described by faith, hope, and love? And here, we're to stimulate one another to love and good works. And I love how the King James Version puts it. I don't say that often about the King James Version, but I do love how it says that here. It says to provoke, uh, to provoke each other. We're to entice one another to good deeds. 
there, there is this sense of outdoing one another, of, 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 um, of outdoing one another as we show love and do these good deeds. It's not that there's a, this, this competition like we often think of it, because when we think of competition, we think of competition because I want to win, because I want everybody to look at me and say, look how great he is. No, not that. But this outdoing one another for the sake of Christ, for the glory of God and for the good of others. In fact, outdoing that for others makes others want to, want to join in doing the same thing. Do we think of it in that way? I'm not sure that we do. But as we do that, it's encouraging to one another in our walks with the Lord Jesus. And that doesn't obviously take place in isolation. And that's why, that's why he says not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. As a pastor, it's interesting sometimes to have these conversations because there are many who spend much of their time discouraged about their faith, discouraged about their walk with Christ. And then you say, are you, are you involved in the life of the church? Well, no, I'm really not. Well, maybe we'll have to stop and ask the question, could that be part of it? Could that be part of it? Might we consider that that may be why you're discouraged? Because this is one of the ways that God has given to us, a main way God has given to us, to be encouraged in our walk with Him. Not only, and and, and it's interesting too, because it also shows us what we think about ourselves and what we think about others. Because not only does one's absence, absence from the body affect themselves, but it also affects others as well. For you see, it's, it's good for you. It's good for me. It's good for the body to assemble together. It's not just about this vertical relationship. Certainly we meet together to worship. And that is our main and our ultimate aim there for doing so. But we also meet for the good of one another. We ought to love and care for our brothers and sisters enough that we gather together for the sake of studying the Word of God together, of encouraging one another in the Word, for the sake of praying with and for one another, for the sake of worshiping together, of fellowshipping together. And it's interesting, I know it is, because it's, our own, it's all of our temptations. We, we often look at the things of the life of the church in, in terms of what it can do for me. And we say things like, well, you know, I don't really like this, so I'm not going to be part of that because it doesn't really do anything for me. Have you ever stopped to consider maybe it's doing something for somebody else for you to be there? But maybe that's thinking too much about other people rather than always thinking just about ourselves. I think we ought to stop and consider those things. Because look, let's face it, we are all different. We all do respond to different things differently and different ways of doing this, that, or the other. But have we ever considered going somewhere, doing something for the sake of another? I can guarantee you our world's not going to tell you to do that. Our world's going to tell you that if it doesn't do something good for you, then you've, you've got no obligation to do that. I'm not talking about obligation. I'm talking about loving our neighbors. And could it be... Could it be that if you actually go there for the sake of another, that you'll end up being blessed because that's exactly what God says will happen? Or do we trust that? The author of Hebrews is calling us to love one another in this way. And all the more, he says, as you see the day approaching, as you see the day drawing near, as I read it. And what day is that? But the, the day that the Lord will return and make all things right. That the end is near. And... and 
I think a lot of times when we think of the, the end is near, I think a lot of us are afraid to speak of that as if people are going to think I'm being chicken little, saying the sky is falling, the sky is falling. That's not what this is about. This is just true. The end is near. It was near for the Hebrews, and it's near for us. And we think, well, that's a long time for something to be near. Well, we are to live every day as if it is near. And so that's the encouragement, right? Love one another. Encourage one another in the here and now because the end is drawing near. And with that in mind, there's also this fearful warning. But, but even as I say that, I want to quickly say, yes, it's a fearful warning, but it's also a gracious reminder. And he says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And the purpose of the author here is to remind them and us in a very direct, very direct way that there is only one sacrifice for sin. And if one turns their back on him, then there's nothing left. That's what he's, that's what he's getting at. This, this verse, it's not about believers who are just struggling with sin. It's not about those even struggling with just besetting sin. Yes, that displeases the Lord. And we're going to talk about that more in just a moment. But that's not the people that he has in view here. What's in view here are those who have received the knowledge of the truth. So, so they've, they've heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They've even participated in some of the outward blessings of it, much like we've already read in Hebrews chapter 6. And yet they still turn their back on Christ. This, he's talking about those who are apostatizing, talking about apostasy. And the warning is this, look, if you turn your back on Christ, outside of Christ, there is no sacrifice. There is no hope outside of him. So don't turn back. Don't turn away from him and try to find another way to deal with sin because there is no other way. It's only Christ. And I've had many experiences, not just as a pastor, but I used to work in a psychiatric hospital with, with adolescents years and years ago. And it's amazing to me. And one of the things that I found working there was it was amazing with me the number of ways that adolescents attempted to deal with guilt and fear and sin and all of those things that faced them outside of Christ. And it's heartbreaking. What the author of Hebrews is saying here is saying every other avenue you look for to deal with that issue, you're going to be lost and without hope because it's only Christ. It's only Christ. Only Christ can deal with sin. And the alternative to Christ is severe judgment. He says, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And what a way to say that. This is what's faced if you turn your back on Christ. And now we've talked a lot about contrast and comparisons between the old and the new covenants. But here we have a, a contrast between a future with Christ and a future apart from Christ. I can't help but to think of what Paul says in 1 Thess 4. Where he says that we do not want you to be uninformed brothers. That, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. Peter says it this way, that as believers were born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Those who know the Lord Jesus have a hope in the future. And we know that and we speak of it often and well we should. But those that turn their back on Christ 
have no hope. I think sometimes we're a little bit afraid to speak of this because of what, my, of, what my, of what people might think of us or say of us. But those that turn their back on Christ have in fact only a fearful expectation of judgment. Think about a motive for missions. If that's what awaits those that have not Christ, don't, wouldn't we, shouldn't we want to take Christ to them? So the warning is don't tear away from Christ. There are severe consequences for doing so. In fact, he says in verse 28, he says, anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So again, Old Covenant, New Covenant stuff, looking back to the Old Covenant, there were severe consequences to one turning from the covenant of God and turning aside to idols. In fact, if one were to do such a thing and there were witnesses to it, then the punishment was death by stoning. And we go, oh my goodness, that's really severe, isn't it? In fact, we, we would probably bristle at that kind of punishment today. But the point here is, is the reality is that he who turns from Christ after Jesus having been manifest to him is even under a more severe punishment. So when we come to the new covenant, the blessings are more wonderful, yes. But the consequences to rejecting it are even more severe. He says, how much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he's sanctified and has outraged, outraged the spirit of grace? How could they regard as unclean the blood of the covenant? How could, they, how could they insult the spirit of grace? The blood of Christ is that which truly cleanses. But to turn from that and to turn back as these in, the Hebrews were tempted to do to these animal sacrifices would be to deem the blood of Christ as unclean. So what a thing to do to trample the blood of Jesus. And the consequences, not mere stoning by men but the punishment is meted out by God himself. We probably need to be reminded of this every once in a while. There is something worse than being stoned to death. And that is meeting face to face the creator of all things apart from the mediator, Jesus Christ. That's part of what the author of Hebrews is communicating to us because God himself says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And then, did you notice this part when I read it? The author of Hebrews then said, the Lord will judge his people. I mean, we can look out there at the world a lot and go, oh man, they deserve it, this. They deserve that. They're going to get what's coming to them. But the author of Hebrews here says, the Lord judges his people. Where does judgment begin? With the house of God. The house of God. Yes, his people. Membership in a particular church doesn't guarantee anything. Is it important? Yes. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying church membership is to no avail. I'm not saying church membership doesn't mean anything uh, in the practical sense. I'm not even saying that we shouldn't be church. We should be. In fact, you know me well enough to know. I would say that. We need to be members of a local particular church. But brothers and sisters, Jesus is the one who saves. There can be unconverted people in the life even of a particular church. I pray and trust that there would be none here. Because my desire would be that we all receive the blessing. But only Christ saves and to, receive, and to reject Christ is to sin against God. 
And that seems obvious, doesn't it, to say that? To, that, to reject Christ as sin against God, but we need to be remembered of that, reminded of that, and to reject, uh, to reject Christ is to spit in the face of God because Christ is the one that He has sent as the way for our sin to be forgiven, and He will repay. And the text says it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Can't you hear the urgency and the plea and the love for the people by this author? On whom does the wrath of God for your sin fall? Does it fall on Christ or does it fall on you? And our culture today can't understand this text or texts like it. Why? Because they've, they've attempted to take sin and the punishment of sin out of the context of the gospel. But when you do that, there is no gospel because there's no need for it. And the fear of God, now I know and I would love to be able to say that the main motivation in my life is the, is the love of God for a sinner like me. And I, I hope that's the case. I want it to be the case that because of what God has done for me in Christ Jesus, that it moves me, that it motivates me to want to love God and love my neighbor. I want it to be that way. But if we're honest, the fear of God also is a good motivator, isn't it? And it should be, should be. Fear of God can be a great motivator to overcoming sin in your life. And we have this warning against sin here. And, and, and again, and again, the author's been talking not just about any sin, but he's been talking about the rejection of Christ. Um, but I think, too, there's an application here for us, a motivation for us to keep from sinning, isn't there? I, I heard a, an advertisement on the radio for the TV show CSI, this has been quite some time ago, uh, back when it was really popular. And the main character, there was just a clip of the main character, and he says this in the advertisement. He says, and he's all passionate, you know, he says, this just isn't, this isn't just murder anymore. This is now personal. So you may be saying, well, what's the big deal? I want you to let that sink in for a minute because I really do believe that's exactly what we think about sin sometimes. Definitely what our culture thinks about it. Even crept into the life of the church. Think about it. So in other words, what he's saying is, it's one thing for a murder to have taken place. It's one thing that the law of God has been broken. It's one thing that his law has been transgressed. But by gosh, it is quite another that I've now been crossed. And this is personal. Do you see? That's how we too often think about sin, isn't it? If it bothers God, oh well. But if you cross me, if you cross me, oh, may we see sin as sin. A transgression against God himself, the sovereign creator of, of all things. As attractive as sin might be sometimes, as deceptive as it might be sometimes, as alluring as it might be sometimes. May we see it as sin. May we see it as dangerous and destructive. Luke, Charlie, and I were traveling a few weeks ago, and we were driving through Alabama. And um, it's not just in Alabama that you'll see this. You'll see this in Mississippi and South Carolina and other places. And I even heard there's a, maybe some in Lowell um, right here in northwest Arkansas. Can you believe it? But at any rate, it's not anything like it is in Alabama. Driving down the roads in Alabama, you look off to the side, and there looks like this just 
beautiful canopy of something laying over the trees. It's called kudzu, if you've never heard of it. And it is almost fairy tale-ish to look at it. Because if the light hits it just right, it can be beautiful. It looks almost velvety as it lays over this canopy of trees. So we were talking about that in the car. And then we began to talk about how, yeah, that's beautiful, but it's also killing the trees that it's hanging on because it is but a parasite that kills its host. And Luke turned to me and he goes, well, that's a great analogy for sin, isn't it? And I said, yeah, that's a great analogy for sin. It may look pretty. It may come with a lot of bells and whistles, but it kills its host. It kills its host. May we see sin as sin and may we run to Christ. Don't turn from him, but run to Christ because there is a reward as well. And there's an encouragement to that end. And that's where he ends this. And, and uh, verse 32, the author asks him to remember the former days. After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated for you had compassion in those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession of an abiding one. You see, there is a reward, and there is a future. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is saying, comparing your past and your present trials with those future blessings, just don't compare whether it's to the Hebrews or whether it's to the Trinity Gracians. Can I say that? Does that work? Trinity Gracians? I don't know. We'll make that up. Whether it's to the Hebrews or whether it's to you. Let's look at our present trials in the context of the sea of God's good mercies, shall we? And might that change the way that we see them? When we look at that which is to come, the things of today don't compare. And because of that, we don't have to hold so tightly to the things that we have here. And brothers and sisters, you're not going to take that stuff with you. And we won't need to. We won't want to. For what we look forward to is so much greater than what we endure now. But that's a struggle, isn't it? I know it is because I, I struggle with it just like you do. I struggle with wanting things in the here and now, of holding on to them tightly. But let's look to the future. Let's have that eternal mindset rather than a temporary one. Do you all remember the old TV show? And I don't think it's on anymore. I don't know. It may be. I don't watch much TV anymore. Um, but it's the old TV show called Hoarders. Remember that one? That was really popular. Um, I once, a long time ago, went on their website just to kind of check it out. And one of the people on their website was explaining her hoarding. Her name was Carrie Lee. And this is what she said about it. She said, every item represents a memory, an experience. It is all what makes up Carrie Lee. And I thought to myself, that's just it, isn't it? That's just it. And whether you are one plagued by that 
particular thing or one who simply struggles with holding on to earthly things, isn't it about us defining ourselves by all of those things rather than by Jesus Christ and the blessings that we have in him? That's the one with whom we want to be identified. And I know, again, it's easy to look out there and look on the extreme and think, gosh, I can't believe somebody would do that. And yet, and yet we do all struggle with that in some way. I know we do. But all these temporary things don't compare to the reward and treasure that awaits us in Christ Jesus. The best of today is but a glimpse of the reality of what is to come. Did you know, and I think I've said this to you before, this world is the closest a believer in Jesus will ever get to hell. But this world is also the closest an unbeliever will ever get to heaven. So the author says, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Don't give up. Don't give in. Stand firm. Keep the faith. Persevere. He says in verse 36, he says, and I, I need to close up here, but he says, you, you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You see, he wants his audience, both in the first, the first century Hebrews as well as us, as well as you. He wants his audience, and we've already learned this as well, to receive the blessing. God wants you to receive what is promised. I want everybody in this church to receive what is promised. Promised, And we are exhorted in the scripture because it's what's good for us. It's what's right for us. It's what glorifies and honors the Lord. And it's what brings blessing to us. So hear it, heed it. Because in their end, there is blessing. It's positive discipline. God gives us these warnings because he loves us. Because he loves us. A son disciplined is a son loved. So heed and hear the word of the Lord. Why? Because... Yet in a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay because Christ is coming. Judgment's coming. So don't forsake the meeting together to encourage one another all the more. And God takes no pleasure in the one who turns away, in the one who shrinks back, in the one who falls away. He takes no pleasure in the one who hears the truth and yet does not believe. Or one who hears the truth and, and, and acts like they believe, acts like they're part of it, and yet then falls away from it. It takes no pleasure in that person. No pleasure in the one who does not hold to the truth of Christ. But the author of Hebrews says, but that's not you. To the Hebrews, he says, that's not you. He says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Those in Christ, by faith, are the righteous ones. Not righteous in and of ourselves, but by Christ Jesus. And, and this is where he goes on to, um, to, quote, uh, to quote Habakkuk. He goes, the righteous shall live by faith. Well, how do we not shrink back? How do we hold fast? How do we live in light of the return of Christ? The answer to that is by faith. We hold fast. Those whose trust is in Christ, we persevere and we, we are preserved and, and the author of Hebrews' argument is really wonderful because here we're ending chapter 10, right? We're moving to chapter 11. What happens in chapter 11? It's the great hall of faith. And so what's he going to do? He's saying, look, this, doesn't, this isn't for us as we fall away. And look at all of these who have gone before that what? By faith. 
by faith, by faith. The great hall of faith in chapter 11. You, in Christ Jesus, believing and trusting in him, you are part of that great cloud of witnesses that by faith trust in the Lord Jesus. How do we live the Christian life? By faith in Jesus, who is, our, who is our great high priest, who lived, who died, who lives again, who reigns and intercedes for you even now. Brothers and sisters, we are a people loved by God. Let's pray, shall we? God in heaven, thank you for this morning, this wonderful text, and even rushing through it like that does not give it justice. The Lord, may you use it for your glory, for your honor, and for the good of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.